Hello, and welcome to Sundays at Coastal. Have you ever had a friend ask to borrow your car? Better yet, has a friend ever just taken your car without asking? It can seem odd that Jesus tells his disciples to take a colt they'll find tied to a fence. His reason, it's Lord needed it. We so often forget that Jesus is the Lord of all, even us. How would you respond if the Lord said he needed you? Um, if you are newer visiting with us this morning, welcome. Uh, let me introduce you to what we believe is a church. We believe three things. First of all, uh, there's always hope beyond our brokenness. Amen? Amen. Amen. Always. All of us have a story of being lost here at this church. We get to tell that story and also the story of being found. That's not just what happened in 1994 at summer camp or 1973 at summer camp or 1943, you know, after I left the military in World War II, right? I don't, we don't have anybody that old here. Um, and so it, it, it's how, how have I got lost last night and how this morning when I sang God's praise, I remembered that I've been found again. Amen? Amen. Uh, if you are looking for a perfect church, um, this ain't it. We're not perfect people, but we have a perfect Savior, and He adores you. Amen? So second, we, we're learning together how to trust in our risen Savior, and He is alive. Did you feel Him this morning? The power of the Holy Spirit? Thank you, Kilo. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Lori. That was just beautiful. Trusting our risen Savior, like Paul said, is something that we learn how to do together. We're not lone rangers, and so we form, we join DNA groups, which is our small groups. Or after the service, you can walk across the street and connect with 30 other people in the best-kept secret in our church called Table Talk, and you can discuss together how do you apply what you learned today. Uh, Christians are famous in America for hearing the gospel preached to them, and then once it's lunchtime, it's just, it's gone out of their ears. And so this is opportunity, Table Talk's an opportunity for you to just, like, let it soak into your soul a little bit. But we learn how to trust Jesus together. And third, we bring restoration. So next week, we get to bring restoration right where we are, and somebody's going to raise their hand, and we're going to give over $500 to that person, and that person's gonna give away that money to someone who does not go to this church and, and just to bless them in Jesus' name. That's what we do. And we do a whole lot of other things as well as a church, but we believe that you and I are called right where we are right now to repair this beautiful, broken, weary, desperate world. Amen? Amen? Amen. So each week as we say this, Every single week, then, we invite you to then make a decision because uh, if you've been married for longer than six months, you understand that you don't fall in love like you fall into a hole. This is not something that just happens to you. You have to make a choice. Yes? So the same thing as following Jesus. You have to make a choice every day, every day. So let's make that choice together. So a disciple is one who walks with God... Oh, wait, sorry. We are disciples who walk intentionally with God. Therefore, are you ready? I don't want to cajole you into this. If you're not ready to say this, you can just go, mm, 
right? But if you're ready to say this with me, if you're ready to make this choice to follow Jesus with me today, then read this with me. I choose to be changed by Jesus, and I choose to seek Jesus first, and I choose to join Jesus in his resurrection work. A friend of mine saw a sign outside of a house. He was on a walk, and he saw a sign outside of a house that said, Talking Dog for Sale. So he went up to the porch, he rang the doorbell, and the owner appeared and said, yeah, you can look at the dog in my back garden. So my buddy goes around back, and there's this nice-looking lab. <laughs> he says to the dog, you do really talk? And the dog says, yes. <laughs> so my buddy's in shock, and he goes, so uh, what's your story? And so the lab looks up and says, well, I discovered I could talk when I was pretty young, and I wanted to help the government, so I joined the CIA. And in no time, they had me jetting from country to country, sitting in rooms, spying on world leaders, because no one ever would imagine that a dog could eavesdrop. I was one of their most valuable spies for eight years, but that was a lot of travel, really tired me out, and I knew I wasn't getting any younger, so I decided to settle down, work to LAX. And I uh, wandered near suspicious-looking characters, listening in. And I uncovered some incredible, you know, drug deals and plots and helped the government there. I was awarded lots of medals, but then I decided to settle down and get married. I had a few puppies, and now I've just retired. My buddy's like, holy cow. And he goes back to the house and goes, how much for your talking dog? And the guy says, 10 bucks. He's like, what? Why on the earth would you sell the talking dog for $10? And the owner says, because he's a liar. He's never been out of the back garden. <laughs> so my, my imaginary friend is a picture of what a talking dog should be. This clearly wasn't it. You and I have a picture in our minds of what our life should look like, how things should work out, how it should go with our marriages and with our children and with our investments and with our careers. We have a picture of what God is like and, and how and when and on what timeline God should intervene in our life and make everything all better. And then what our role is in all of that I think part of growing up is the shock of understanding that so few of our assumptions about life are actually accurate. Can anybody relate with me? It's eerily quiet in this room, which I think means the Holy Spirit is like here and you're going, oh no, why did I come today? Yeah, we are... We are shocked so many times in our life when we discover that our assumptions about how, what God is like and how he works and what our life should be like actually are true. Now, here's the thing. This life and the heart of our Jesus, our Savior, is way more incredible than you could ever imagine. You, you have gotten more than you ever deserved or ever thought that you could. 
and you've also endured more pain than you ever thought imaginable. The foundations of what you thought you could rely on are, have been shaken in your life. You have discovered at some point in your life that you are not who you thought you are or were. In other words, you're more broken than you want to admit. And, and, you are more glorious and powerful and loved by the Savior of the world than you could ever dare to hope. So today we're going to read how Jerusalem and or Jesus enters Jerusalem as the true king of kings. And even before he gets there, he's going to warn his friends with a parable of what that reception will be like. Some are going to welcome him as king and some will resent him. Some will use the gifts that their king has given for the sake of the king of kings and for his glory. And others will assume that everything that they have is just for themselves. And the warnings that Jesus gives are sober and shocking. In this parable, in Luke chapter 19, it's the parable of the minus, M-I-N-A-S, minus. Um, and that's just a sum of money. Have you ever heard the parable of the talents? Right? That, that's not like if you're ambidextrous or double-jointed or can turn your tug into an A-roll. That's not the kind of talent I'm talking about, right? A talent is a sum of money. It's a large sum of money, right? It's, it's like $100,000 or even more, okay? That's a talent. A minus would be like $20,000 or $10,000. It's n- not chump change, but also it's not like you can go buy a house for cash kind of money. Does that make sense? Okay? So when Jesus then tells the parable about the parable of the minus in Luke chapter 19, some people use the money that they've been given for God's glory. Others don't. Others send a delegation to this returning king to say, by the way, just stay away. We don't want you to be our king. This is how how the kingly character in the parable responds to the good and also rebellious subjects of that kingdom. Does that make sense? So this is the kingly character in the parable. This is how he responds. Verse 26. So the kingly character replied, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And this is where Wells Fargo and Bank of America got their overdraft policy. Um, So it's biblical. It's biblical when they rake you over the coals, evidently. Verse 27, let's read this together. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Oh, snap. What? Excuse? Jesus meek and male or what? Huh? What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus saying? He's saying this, and this is the same as the true of the parable of the talents, just like the parable of the minus. The gifts and talents and time and money and opportunity that God has given you has a purpose. Your whole life, everything you are, everything you have has a design, a purpose. And you are designed by God to use every single part of your life to be a blessing to other people. Somebody say amen. Amen. 
And when you pour out your life to be a blessing to other people, what Jesus will do is that he will keep on giving you more and more and more of what you need. Sometimes that's time. Sometimes that's opportunity. Sometimes that's talents, like gifts, skills. Sometimes that's money. That make sense? You don't get to be in charge of what he gives you or when he gives it to you, but you, the promise is always there. As you pour out your life for another person, God will give you exactly what you need to keep on doing that. Picking up what I'm putting down? But if you use your time or energy or money only for yourself, all of what you think that you will gain from that endeavor will become hollow and empty, as though you've lost it all. Does that make sense? And if in your bitterness you rail against God and turn away from him, it will be your death. Somebody say amen to that. I know a guy who grew up in an amazing Christian family. Um, this family would help girls that were being rescued out of horrible, horrific, abusive situations. Every time that they would have a girl in their house, the, the dad owned a painting business, and money would just flow into the painting business. And every time that that got too hard or they didn't want to do that anymore and a girl would leave, then literally, like, the work would just stop. And so... This happened to them for years, and finally they're like, fine, okay, we'll do it. And so they rescued one girl, and she was, uh, she, she, she had significant needs. And all of a sudden, like millions of dollars, this is like in the early 1990s, right? So that's like a billion dollars now because of inflation. Like millions of dollars poured into their business and they were able to meet every single one of their needs. So this kid is in this family and he's growing up and he's looking at all of this. And then uh, when they eventually asked that lady to move out because uh, um, she was too much for them, uh, then the spigot turned off again. And the kid who grew up in that family said, God, I saw you bless my family and I want you to bless me God, if you're real, I want you to make me a millionaire by the time that I'm 30 years old. Otherwise, I'm done. So what did God do? By the time that he was 30, he had made way over a million dollars. And he had bought the extravagant house with the extravagant car, with the extravagant boat, and he had spent that million dollars. And when he turned 30, he looked at his watch and his bank account, and it did not say a million dollars. And you know what he decided to do? He said, God, you haven't given me a million dollars, and so I'm done with you. A couple years later, he was divorced. A couple years later, he lost his business. A couple years later, he lost his... Nobody in the family wanted to talk to him. He's currently one of the most talented people I know Couching, couch surfing in San Diego on a couch. He's in his 50s. His kids and his grandkids really don't want to spend much time with him. He has lost it all. Now, you know people like that, probably, okay? But I can tell you more stories, not of ruin or destruction, 
but I can tell you of smart people. They make all the money that they want to make. They have all this time and talent and opportunity. They use it for themselves. And God doesn't wreck their lives like they don't lose all their money. But you know what happens to all of their endeavors? They become hollow. I know so many people that have all the things in the world. They have all the money and all the time and all the opportunity in the world. And they still can't find someone who loves them. They try and buy things for their family to make them happy, and their family ends up resenting them for them because it all is just a selfish endeavor. Does that make sense? What's the point? The point is, what Jesus is making, is that you use your life as a living sacrifice for the people around you for God's glory. And this is so, so simple in your everyday life. Tip more than you should. Don't be cheap with tips. An extra $5 to that server will mean nothing to you and everything to them. An extra $10 to that server will mean nothing to you and everything to them. And it is so much fun when you go to Denny's and you spend 40 bucks and you tip 40 bucks and watch the look on their face and then you get to have a conversation with them about how the God of the universe loves them. Will you miss that $40 this year? No, you won't. You doubt me? Seven people don't. I'm, I'm not kidding, right? You spent that last week at Starbucks. <laughs> Buy gifts for your neighbor's kids. Mow their lawn. Notice the needs of the people that are sitting in front of you and then go meet them. You will literally become the answer to people's prayers and they will be so shocked that you are loving them so well and they will smell the aroma of God's love in your life. And it will be glorious. And guess what? I see you do this. Oh, I see you do this all the time. Good job. Keep on going. Don't stop. It's so beautiful what you guys do. It is absolutely remarkable. But for those who are enemies of God, those who are hell-bent on keeping everything for themselves and rejecting him as king, know that it is death. Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, you need to know something about the topography here. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, let's do some geography here. Next slide, John. So first of all, there's the Mount of Olives. If you're standing from Jerusalem and you're looking across the valley, this is the Kidron Valley. See all that white on the upper right-hand side? That's a cemetery. Okay, those are literally graves, or in, as Jesus will say to the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. He'll tell them, you're like whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> and you can see there all of that greenery at the top, and if you notice just a tiny little building with arches at the top, that's actually a church to this day. If you were to go on the Mount of Olives and then you would look around to the other side, you would see this. Next slide, John. There is, you're sitting on top of that mountain with all of those graves, and you'd go down the Kidron Valley, and you'd go up the other side, and can you see the, 
that, that, that big old wall, and then you can see the Dome of the Rock with the Golden Dome, right? That's where the temple used to be. Now that's the Muslim Mosque, the Dome of the Rock. But that huge wall, that's the base of the temple, and on the left-hand side there, that's called the Wailing Wall. That's the Jewish sector where Jews can still pray. So when King David fled Jerusalem because he had wrecked his leadership there, Everybody was going up to the Mount of Olives with him, weeping, okay? This will be on the Mount of Olives where this picture is taken. This is where Jesus goes to the garden that is there called the Garden of Gethsemane, and he weeps, and he says, God, not my will be done, but your will be done. Does that make sense? Okay. So Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives hanging out in, in this little town, Bethpage, and he sends two disciples ahead. What does he say? Let's read this together. You ready? Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, which no one has ever ridden. This is a, uh, if you're in sneaker culture, this is a, a dead stock cult, okay? Uh, if you collect baseball cards, this is mint still in the sleeve, right? It's still got that new cult smell, right? It's like zero miles on this cult, okay? Uh, let's keep on reading. Untie it and bring it here. Why are you untie it? It says, Lord needs it. <laughs> you should try that with your neighbor's Tesla, right? <clears throat> now, you need to know that the owner of this cult hasn't been like texted beforehand. Jesus isn't like, hey, remember me? Like, I healed your family. Like, can I have your donkey for the day? Hasn't happened, okay? Why? Why is that important detail? Because Jesus tells his disciples that if you give generously of your life, what will happen when the king arrives? Uh huh. And if you think that everything that you have is just for you, that will become your death. Yes? So he's giving this person an opportunity who has this brand new, fresh off the lot, cold, okay? An opportunity to be generous. Just gonna borrow the colt for a day, okay? Verse 32. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, by the way, they didn't ask, right? They're like, how could I possibly ask? This is so awkward. Let's just take it. Yeah, God will sort it out in the end. Come on. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Right? Jesus says, here's a colt. Go ask for it. And they think, there's the colt. Let's just steal it. Fantastic detail, right? And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, dude, why are you in my Tesla? Get out of my car, right? What did they say? What did, well, let's, let's find their, I, it, this is fantastic. Their response, they replied, the Lord Right? So, by the way, when you steal something, just say, the Lord needs it. Right? Yeah, that's fantastic. You, uh, this is so great, too. You could also translate it as this. This would be a totally legitimate translation. Its Lord needs it. Meaning, the donkey has a Lord, 
and his name is Jesus. And so I'm just taking the donkey where it needs to be, right? It's fantastic. Do you understand that Jesus is the ultimate owner of everything that you have? Do you understand that Jesus owns you? That he has bought you with a price? That every breath that you take that is in your lungs right now is a gift? That Jesus has been generous enough to let you steward all the things that you have? And God asks you to join him in his kingdom with your generosity of time or money or opportunity or kindness or forgiveness or love, whatever it is that he asks you to give. And he says, will you give that? Because you're mine and what you have is mine. Will you say yes? Yes. Even if somebody's untying your colt in your front yard? Because this guy gives his little colt, brand new, still got the tag on it, to Jesus. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and then put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road down the valley of Kidron up to Jerusalem on the other side. Now, the word for colt is, next slide, John, is polo or polos, colt or a donkey. By the way, I always love that about the polo company. It just means jack, or I mean uh, donkey. Just FYI. Um, they place him on it like, as, as, though, as though, see, like if you're a king, you get placed on like your war horse, but this is a reversal. Jesus is placed on a wee donkey. But a colt or a donkey would be common for a poor person or common for like a, a teenager. These, this is the mode of transportation or the wheels of like a 19-year-old. Does that make sense? Like when the president arrives in his inauguration, he doesn't like step off the city bus or roll up in his Mitsubishi Lancer. Do you even know what that car is? It's the worst car in the history of the world. A Plymouth Aztec, right? The 1991 Toyota Corolla with 380,000 miles on it, okay? Right, the AMC, that's a good car, Paul, okay? Yeah, a Pinto, right? Yeah. Right, you know? Like, that's not how the president arrives. That's how Jesus rolls into Jerusalem. Does that make sense? What happens? Verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is heading down the mountain. He's not even going up to Jerusalem yet. He's still heading down the mountain of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for all the miracles that they'd seen. Everybody give me a woo-hoo. Ready? Everyone's praising God. Everybody's praising Jesus. This is exactly the opposite of the scene the last time that a king was on the Mount of Olives. The last time that a king was on the Mount of Olives, it was King David, and he was escaping in disgrace. Okay? But what happens, what happened to the next king after King David? His name was Jehu. You remember that in 2 Kings chapter 9. 
right? You read that for your morning's devotional, right? <laughs> what happens? What happens? Remember how the crowds are putting their cloaks down in front of Jesus as he's going down the hill? That's exactly what the crowds did with Jehu. They put their cloaks down in front of him and they sang this song to Jehu. Ready? It goes like this. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Luke, I love this, throws in another song that got sung just to Jesus, but now it's the second time it's been sung to him. Remember the first time? Yeah, it's birth. What does it say? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Remember the parable? Some people are excited that the king has been returning. Some people have used their gifts and their talents. They just cannot wait. Oh, my gosh, the king is here. He's going to set other, all things right. Some people are, are totally selfish. Some people sent even a delegation to the king and said, we don't want you. So you can imagine what's going to happen next. Are you ready? Verse 39, here we go. And some of the pastors, because that's what Pharisees are, some of the pastors in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why do they say that? Why do they say rebuke your disciples? Well, a couple things. Number one, they don't want Jesus to be coronated king. There's already a king. His name is Herod, right? Pharisee, this is Holy Week, by the way. This is like the week of Passover, right? So the last thing that a pastor wants during Easter week is a political revolution. You know why? It's bad for tithing. And also your neighbors get killed by the Romans. It's just overall not great way to celebrate God rescuing the whole nation from slavery and bondage. Picking up what I'm putting down? Second, Pharisees, they were the theological watchdogs. They didn't believe that a country bumpkin like Jesus, and he was. He's from Galilee. You know how they talked in Galilee? <laughs> like they were uneducated, okay? And in our country, when you talk like this, it sounds like you've had a fourth grade education. Amen. It's true. That's our prejudice on the West Coast. In the South, when you talk like that, you're like normal. If you talk like a Californian, then when you go to the South, you're like, why are you all uppity, right? It's just the way that it is, right? So the Pharisees, they don't want some country bumpkin coming in because obviously he's off because this country bumpkin says, you know what, you shouldn't even, like everything that you're doing is off. And the Pharisees like, this can't be, right? I can't have got, I went to seminary. I'm a pastor. I can't have gotten it all wrong, right? And Jesus is like, mm. and the Pharisees like, let's just kill him, okay? <laughs> What's Jesus' response? Verse 40, let's read this together. I tell you, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, even the rocks will cry out. Even the stones will cry out. Even very inanimate nature itself would declare that Jesus is the King of Kings. This is exactly what happened a week later. A massive stone was rolled away, revealing an empty tomb. Even that rock cried out that Jesus is the true King of Kings. 
and billions upon billions of human beings on planet Earth whose hearts were once dead like stone now cry out, we've been made alive by the love of our Savior. There is no stopping Jesus. There is no stopping his plan to save you and redeem you and this weary and broken world. If you muzzle a Christ follower, if you, if you crush them, they go deeper into Christ and more will rise up around them. Why? Why is this true? Why is this true for you and me who love Jesus? Why is this true for you and me who love Jesus? Why? Because I am Jerusalem. I am the city that claims to love God, and I say, praise God, and a week later, I also say in my heart, crucify him. I claim to be a person that is dedicated to God, and you claim to be a person that is dedicated to God, and there's still rebellion in our lives. And Jesus still enters your gates. Not with violence, not with condemnation, but with a plan to save you. Because I am the Pharisee. Literally, I'm the pastor. And there's a part of me that still refuses to acknowledge Jesus as king. I don't want Jesus to disrupt the little formulas I've created. I like spending my money the way that I spent it, right? Plus, I have it all on automatic now, so, right? It's just so easy to prioritize me. I like not being sacrificial. I mean, I like being sacrificial in terms of, like, I have to save up to buy another really nice big tool that I'll never use. Like, that's sacrifice, right? But I don't like being sacrificial in the way that Jesus asked me to. There's a part of my heart that still doesn't. There's a part of my heart that loves that, but I'm not talking about that part of my heart or your heart. I'm talking about the part of our hearts that still doesn't want Jesus to mess with our little formulas. And Jesus still enters my life. Jesus still loves me enough. He still talks to me. He will still die to me. And who is the person that wrote the most of the New Testament? A guy named Paul. He was a guy named Saul, which means big man. And then he changed his name to Paul, which literally means wee man, like small guy, itty bitty. That's what Paul literally means in Hebrew. And Paul changed his name. Saul changed his name to Paul because he said, I, I have been, I am... I was the most zealous Pharisee of them all, and all I wanted to do was kill Christians. And what did Jesus do to me? He entered into my life, and he saved me. And so I'm not going to be big anymore. I'll gratefully be small so I can give all the praise and all the glory to my big and glorious Savior. Amen? That's what Jesus does with the part of your heart that's still religiously oriented, where you're still trying to earn it, where you still think that God doesn't like you or won't answer your prayers, even if you haven't prayed often enough. That's not who your heavenly father is. He adores you and loves you right where you are. Somebody say amen, I'm preaching now, right? 
And guess what? I'm Jerusalem and I am the Pharisee and I am also the temple. And what does Jesus do when he enters the temple? What does he see for this place that's designed for worship and reconciliation and love? It's designed for salvation. That's your and I's design. And what do we do with our hearts? Oh, we set up little tiny busy things to do. We send up little tiny exchanges, little, all this little busy work so that we can avoid praying or avoid worshiping or avoid laying down our lives. And what does Jesus do when he enters into the temple? He just flips it all over. We're like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, I'm claiming you as my own. Your life is designed to worship the God of the universe and to be the very place where all of the people in your life are reconciled to God. He claims you as his own because he loves you. He loves you. And Jesus is walking down that mountain right now and he's approaching your gates. And he's not asking for your performance and he's not asking for your half-hearted praise because you think you should. He's saying, can I enter your life as your savior? as the one who loves you more than anything else in all the world, as your king who will ask you to give and to love sacrificially and you will have to respond. Will you trust me even when it gets hard? Will you trust me? That's what he's asking you this morning. This was two weeks ago, and after the first service, Kit comes up to me. If you don't know Kit Carson, get to know Kit Carson. If you need a landscaper, talk to Kit Carson. Kit Carson's great-great-great-great-grandfather stole from Paul's great-great-great-great-grandfather. <laughs> Paul's great-great-great-great-grandfather was the sheriff, and he was in the owner of a saddlery, and Kit's great-great-great-great-grandfather an was an apprentice who skipped out uh, on work and took some stuff with him. So there literally was a reward sheet there for that. So they've reconciled. The debt was a penny. I'm not... Right? Interest has gone down. In, interest... <laughs> compounding is just awful, right? So Kit comes up to me and he says, Andy, I love, I lo I love what you're saying about, uh, about us and our lives and the gospel and about being more broken than we want to admit. I just, want, I just have to feel like God wants you to hear something, and that is that we are not living flat on our backs. You need to know something about the power of you understanding the, the gospel and also the vulnerability of the gospel and also that it's okay to talk about your pain or your sorrow or your, your grief or your failures. That is not you living flat on your back. You know what is that is? That is you standing up gloriously, not condemned because God does not condemn you. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know that you can be honest with your life, vulnerable about your life and your great need for God. And when you tell that story, you're telling the resurrection story. I was dead and now I'm alive. I was lost and now I am found. Amen? 
That is the power of the Christian life, not your religious performance that everything should be fine and that I have it all together. No, no, no. The power of the Christian life is saying there's still a part of me that's the Pharisee. There's still a part of me that's Jerusalem. There's still a part of me that's the temple. And now I've invited God in more and more and more, and he's rearranging everything, and he's claiming me as his own. And when you tell that story to your friends and your neighbors, they'll say, well, that sounds like me. And it's powerful, it's beautiful, it's incredible. So thank you for that, kid. And then I was talking with our custodian, Rachel. She comes up to me, and I don't know if you know this, but when Rachel cleans, she also prays for each one of you. She prays for our church. And she came up to me crying, and if you know Rachel, she hates crying. She literally sat down and said, I hate it that I'm crying right now. And I was like, okay. She said she had this image that out of each one of your hearts, there was a string, this, this beautiful multi-stranded string, and it was all the colors of your life, all the love and the hope and the joy and the patience and the generosity that you give, and each one of you had a, had a different color. And, and out of all of the strings of your life, then she had this zoomed out and she saw this enormous loom. And there was God the Father taking all of the threads of all of your lives as your, your thread would go into you and you and my thread would go in, in here. And then it, they would even change colors as they came out. And as God put them into this incredible loom, out of this incredible loom was rising this beautiful tapestry. And it was the picture and it was the story of all redemption and all creation right here. And she's weeping while she's telling me this, and I'm weeping. I'm like, dang it, Rachel, I have an appointment like in three minutes. What are you doing to me? <laughs> and then she said, Andy, I want to encourage you because there's going to be times when people are going to come into your life and out of your life. And in those moments of pain or brokenness, in those moments when we make terrible mistakes, we think, oh, God's cut me out of the tapestry. It's a lie. It's a lie. God will use the, that situation in your life. He will use that period in your life, and it will still be part of the picture because the picture that God is creating is gloriously beautiful. So you have a decision to make now as Jesus enters into your life. Will you let him come in? Not to just be an advice giver, but to be your king and your savior and your friend. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the mercy given to me today by the friends and family I have in my life. It is such a sweet and beautiful reminder of your enormous love for me. The same mercy, the same grace 
that I do not deserve, Jesus. Fill my friends now with your Holy Spirit. As they breathe in right now, we say, come, Lord Jesus, into our lives. We receive you as King and Savior and Lord. We are done trying to gather every single thing just for ourselves and not trusting you at all. We are done with our selfishness and our fear and our shame. We gratefully receive this calling that you have on our life to step into sacrificial love and care for other people. We do not want to be the people that say, be quiet, Jesus. Or please, we don't want you as king. We know that's death. We say yes to you, Jesus. We keep our eyes on you. We give you glory and honor and praise. So bless and seal all of these good things that we've sung and that your scripture has proclaimed in the hearts of my friends today, both online and in here. I thank you for them. I ask that you would honor them and bless them and protect them, that they would be surrounded by your spirit today. They would know the depth of your love for them, God. I praise you for my friends. You are our way maker, our miracle worker, the light in my darkness is who you are, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. would you stand for the benediction? If you would, you would like a prayer, you can come forward. We'd love to pray for you. If you'd like to go to Table Talk, it starts in about 12, 13 minutes across the street. Uh, I love you guys. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance. That's his delight in you. And give you the peace that passes all understanding. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's beloved saints said, Amen. Say hi to our online friends. We love you guys. Have a great day. Pastor Andy Rock is the senior pastor of Coastal Community Church. It's located in Grover Beach, California and serves communities across the Central Coast. Join us online each week on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. for our weekly live stream. We also have two in-person services at 9 a.m. and 10.40 a.m. in our sanctuary. Coastal Community Church is located at 1830 Farrell Road, Grover Beach, California. For more information, visit our website www.mycoastal.org. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you have a great week.